You're listening to Bloomberg Law. It was billed as a free speech rally in the heart of downtown Boston with a list of controversial conservative and libertarian speakers. But the rally fizzled as some 40,000 counter-demonstrators flooded the Boston Common and the surrounding area and effectively shouted down the group. The event was largely a peaceful one, putting it in contrast with the deadly demonstrations a week earlier in Charlottesville, Virginia. Here's Boston Police Commissioner William Evans. We got the First Amendment people in. We got them out. And, um, you know, and no one got hurt, no one got killed, and we don't really have a whole lot of property. In fact, we have no significant at all property damage to the city. So, great day for the city. Evans said 27 people were arrested. With us to talk about the events in Boston, Harvey Silverglate. He's a criminal defense and civil liberties litigator. He's of counsel to the law firm Zalkin, Duncan, and Bernstein, uh, working in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Judy Katulis, a professor at St. Olaf College. Um, thanks to both of you for joining me. I want to start with what happened on the ground in Boston, and then maybe we can move into some of the First Amendment implications. Harvey, who gets the credit in Boston for the, the relative limited amount of violence that took place on Saturday? Well, uh, I guess the same people who get the credit for the fact that the event was a total failure. Um, this notion uh, that, that, that there's a kind of a, an epidemic of false facts going on around Boston, if I could use that volatile phrase. The free speech rally was a total and complete failure. Uh, Police Commissioner Evans says we got them in and we got them out. But one thing we didn't get was we didn't hear a single word from the speakers. How this can be billed, a free speech success, is totally Orwellian, totally beyond me. It was a real failure. Judy, how how do you assess that that question? Uh, who, Who gets credit and who gets blamed for how things went forward in Boston on Saturday? Well, I think that it's the city that gets the the blame. There is no credit because this was a failure, but they get the blame. the The whole event was mishandled by the city. Um, it could have easily gone off without a hitch if the city only was a little bit smarter. Judy Katulis, uh, from from your vantage point at St. Olaf College, uh, what's your take on how the the, the city performed with with this demonstration? Well, I think most people approached the idea of a free speech uh, march in the same way that they misunderstand what the ACLU does, that they, that they tended to see it as one that was a partisan view, that took a partisan view, whereas um, not knowing the specifics of the, the, what, who was planned to speak in Boston or anything like that, um, the idea of civil liberties or protecting free speech is a very tricky matter because it isn't a partisan issue. It's a democratic one. Well, well Judy, let me just follow up on that. So, so right after William Evans, the Boston cl- police commissioner, talked about the, the success in limiting the violence and property damage, uh, you know, he went on to say uh, something along the lines that you know, bigotry has no place here in, in Boston. Um, is, is that, are you suggesting that a, a police commissioner should be re, remain neutral and not, not express uh, views on the underlying issues going on with the protest? Well, it depends on the, the issues that he's expressing opinions on. Uh, free speech, as the ACLU would argue, belongs to all groups. 
as long as there isn't violence or as long as they're falling within the parameters of the ways that the United States defines free speech. But the police commissioner definitely has to make some judgments about whether what was planned falls into those parameters for defining free speech. Harvey, what would you have had the the city do differently uh, since since you have have criticized them? This event could not take place in an open space like the Boston Common. The fact that tens of thousands of people showed up and they were not peaceful, they were not calm and quiet, there was a mob that made it impossible for the event to go forward. Nobody could have heard a word that would have been said. What the city should have done was insist that this event be held in an enclosed theater or an amphitheater of some kind where a limited number of people would be in the audience, where the police could have easily kept control in case somebody got out of control, and where it could have been live-streamed so that the whole world could have heard it. There was such a simple solution. The police instead enabled a pre-riot condition to evolve, and then got rid every took every, shut down the whole event, took the speakers away before they could say word one, and then proclaimed the success for free speech in Boston. It's nuts. <laughs> Our guests are Judy Kutulis, who's a professor at St. Olaf College, and Harvey Silverglate, a Cambridge, Massachusetts criminal defense and civil liberties litigator. Um, Judy, some of the comments I read from the counter-demonstrators essentially said this, that what was going to go on at this this rally was hate speech, and it might even be a, a call to violence, and therefore we were justified in in shouting them down and preventing them from saying what they they plan to say. Do you agree with that? Um, No, I don't, actually. I I think that um, free speech entitles people to other ways of communicating that. I can understand where there were somewhat extenuating circumstances in Boston. had I been in Boston, I might well have shown up at that counter rally. But um, just in the a- abstract sense, I think that it's problematic when one group of people shouts down and shuts down another group's right to free speech. Harvey, what do you think about that that question of of uh, this potentially being a call to violence. Um, at some point, um, isn't there a right to uh, prevent a group from speaking if what they are espousing uh, could be dangerous? Well, the, the ridiculous um, analysis that we're hearing um, and <clears throat> that is, is inherent in the question that you asked me is simply this. How do we know that speech is hate speech until we've had an opportunity to hear it? Nobody heard what these people have to say. And in fact, from all we know, this was a very eclectic group from all over the political spectrum. But there is no reason at all to think that hate speech was going to be 
um, uh, uh, you know, spoken at this rally. But second of all, hate speech is constitutionally protected. If we had a First Amendment that only protected love speech, we wouldn't have liberty at all. So this crowd that shut down this free speech rally violated the constitutional rights of the speakers and violated the constitutional rights of people who wanted to listen. I wanted to listen. Judy, I want to ask you about the ACLU, which recently said that it won't uh, that it, while it has represented white supremacists uh, and, and people across the ideological spectrum, uh, that it won't represent people who are uh, carrying semi-automatic uh, uh, military-style weapons. I, is this a, a change in the way the ACLU has approached this issue, or, or is this a policy they've always had that we just didn't know about? I think it's a change in other kinds of laws. Um, certainly one of the rights guaranteed in the First Amendment is the right, right to assemble peacefully. The, the fact that so many states have now enacted laws uh, where you can carry guns in public or concealed weapons in public um, means that the ACLU is going to have a trickier job or any agency is going to have a trickier job deciding how to interpret whether or not a crowd is armed or dangerous or threatening or is about to result in violence. It's, it's just a, something outside of the ACLU's control that I think is possibly an unexpected consequence of some of the, the laws that have been passed in states regarding guns. Harvey, and what do, also technological development. Harvey, what do we do about these two rights? Um, it is, in a lot of states, perfectly legal, legal for people to walk around uh, with weapons uh, being displayed. Um, and uh, we have seen, in the case of Charlottesville, that sometimes that accompanies people who are trying to speak as well, and, and that maybe having those weapons uh, changes uh, how free other people feel to, to speak there in opposition. What do we do about those two, two competing rights, the First Amendment and the Second Amendment? Well, first of all, these are two amendments that are very clearly uh, set forth in the Bill of Rights. And uh, I think the ACLU is trying to balance the two of them. I happen to think that it's made a mistake, but it's not a mistake from bad faith. I think it's it's an error in judgment. And I think eventually the ACLU might actually change its mind and come back to its original position that they will protect free speech in a rally, even where people are armed. Um, But I can't believe I can't. I can't. Um, uh, I can forgive the ACLU for being uh, quite shocked by the events in Charlottesville, and it's caused a lot of people to stop and think, and to question things they've been believing and been doing. And so, I think the ACLU can be forgiven if it turns out this was a mistake. Judy, where do you think this this whole debate is going? Are you concerned that we are uh, are, are we uh, getting into a, a, a an escalation of of rhetoric and violence that is going to be harmful to to our conversation, or or is Boston evidence that maybe we're we're uh, moving in a more peaceful direction? Um, I worry a lot about the present 
political climate and the way that either side interprets it, um, that I worry that people who have minority views probably, I'm, I would like to hope, about uh, America as a white nation or as one that isn't welcoming of various groups, that that these people are, I would like to think that they are a minority, but they, I feel like they've been emboldened by events recently and by um, Donald Trump in the White House. At the same time, I think that as a younger generation steps in to respond to them, sometimes they use different tactics that, that have evolved since the 60s when there was so much protest in the United States, that, that circumstances have changed, that technology has changed. It's easier to gather a crowd very quickly through social media. And so the same expectations about civil liberties and civil rights and communication with people with whom you disagree, I think all of that is is just changing very, very rapidly. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank Judy Katulis and Harvey Silverglade for talking to us about the events in Boston this weekend. That's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. We'll be back tomorrow.